Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 14, Balance of Terror. Good morrow, friends. Wait, we're not doing Shakespeare this week, are we? Uh, no. Cool. Hey, y'all, it's time for another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. The show that dares to ask the question, can an old TV show tell us anything about tomorrow? Spoiler alert, yes. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch Star Trek. Then we watch it again, and then we watch it again, and we take it apart to find any messages, morals, and meanings hidden within. I gotta say, John, it's sad when you get to a show like this week's and there aren't any. (gasps) Is that that a spoiler? (laughs) Wait a minute, are are we giving up the goat here that there are no messages, morals, and meanings this week? Giving up the goat? Yeah, you've never heard that term? <laughs> no, I actually this is a this is a very fascinating episode replete with messages, morals and meanings. So, if you were fooled by my little faint there or anything <laughs> else that starts with F, uh don't don't be fooled again. There's a lot. There's a lot happening in this episode. I love it when you quote the who. Uh we are talking about Balance of Terror, which is one of the it really is a fan favorite. It's one of those that always ends up on people's top 10 lists. And, um, you know, we might as well just go right into the trivia because the most important thing about this episode is that it's the first time that we meet the Romulans. <laughs> I want to play family feud music when you say that. Uh, meet, yeah. <laughs> meet the Romulans. You know, and we'll name. <laughs> I can't remember any of the names. Though. Tiberius. <laughs> Demetrius. I don't know. I can't. You know, just use Roman names. Copernicus. Copernicus. On that, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, he, I think this is the, a cool kind of conceit about the show. So for the audience, obviously, it's the first time that we are meeting the Romulans. But in Star Trek lore, they have this hundred-year-plus history uh, of an, an old war where they had never actually seen the Romulans. Yeah, no, so, every, everybody is meeting the Romulans for the first time in this yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, kind of neat. And this episode is very reminiscent, though you could arguably use the word stolen, depending on who you talk to, of uh, many World War II films, uh, especially Run Silent, Run Deep. The, this, the, the backbone of this story is submarine warfare. Yes. Where you've got the Enterprise is basically the surface ship, and then you have the Romulan bird of prey, which is going in and out of its cloaking, uh, kind of cloaking mode, so it's hidden, and that's acting as the submarine in this case. And uh, yeah, and, and then they fight. <laughs> it's actually it, it's actually very interesting to think that they might have created cloaking technology just to be able to carry off a submarine battle in space. Because because cloaking mm-hmm. technology becomes, you know, I mean, it's a fairly important thing. Sure. <laughs> it's a fairly sure. huge yeah. thing. A- yeah. And yet it's possible that it was just a device to to make a 23rd century story, a, a World War II um, battle between the submas. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Yep. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of neat. Uh, trivial? Eh, maybe, but it's interesting. It's Even when just the little trivia things end up being huge later on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm really glad this is the first time we also get to meet the actor Mark Leonard in Star Trek. He had a long, long history with Star Trek after this, but here he is a bad guy. And I just have to say that, you know, it's so obvious he is the Romulan commander in this, but the one word for him throughout this episode is commanding. Um, he's just got a, a, a great deal of gravitas and really sells that role. Love watching him in this. You know, there are two things that I'll say really quickly about Mark Leonard being in this. I watched – I know that originally when I saw this episode, I saw it out of order. Mm-hmm. because we're watching and it's the Romulans and it's the Romulans. We've never seen the Romulans before. And okay, I get all of that. And then the screen comes on and I'm like, oh my God, it's Spock's dad. He's trying to kill them. No. <laughs> right. And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. I got it later that he was just playing a different guy. But even then in my head, I was like, well, it's stupid that they have the same actor playing Spock's dad and then he's going to play <laughs> the Romulan. Uh, no, he's actually, you know, playing the Romulan and later he'll play Spock's dad. Right. I don't get, though, how you're going to, you know, tip your hat to Mark Leonard and not tip your hat to Lawrence Montaigne. I was uh, astonished yeah. to see oh. him on the Romulan ship. Hello. That's I see a, what you did there. That, that's a joke for season two. So if you don't know what I'm doing <laughs> there, hang on. Uh, 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 episode one, season two. Yeah. Then you're going to bust a gut. Then go back and listen to this and you're going to be like, oh, what he did. Oh, yeah. it's comedy gold. Save this episode for about six months and come back to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then it'll be even better. Um, and the director, uh, Vincent Beccaviti, uh, he directed a lot of TV. Uh, he, I think he did about six or seven episodes of Trek. And he also directed several episodes of The Lieutenant, which was Gene Roddenberry's other show before Star Trek. His other show before Star Trek. Yes. Okay. Because there are yeah. other other shows as well. Right, right, right. But yeah. he did the lieutenant, um, I believe, in about 1962. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I thought you were going to say, like, you know, one of the other other shows. No. This, <laughs> is, just, this is just the other one. All right. Yeah. Cool. Fair enough. <laughs> hey, we got a question before we get to the, uh, you know, the big, the big, big parts of the show. Uh, is your communicator working? Not you, John. I can tell yours is. But everybody else, if you want to hail us, please do so. Twitter, at Mission Log Pod is our name there, at Mission Log Pod. Or you can hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Mission Log Pod. Uh, you can also reach us on Skype with the handle Mission Log Pod. And if you're oh so retro that you feel like phoning is the way to go, please, oh, please do that. 323-522-5641. 323-522-5641. Your comments may be used on a future edition of Mission Log. And don't forget, we have a graphically stunning website at www.missionlogpodcast.com. See, I'm so retro, I put the www in front of missionlogpodcast.com. Thank God you dropped the HTTP colon slash slash, though, because nobody wants to hear anybody say HTTP colon slash. Oh, wait. How exciting to finally see the Romulans. It's like meeting an old friend. Sadly, it's like meeting an old friend that wants to kill you. Prologue. Kirk is presiding over a wedding between two members of the Enterprise crew. But the nuptials are interrupted by an emergency hail from Earth Outpost 4. It is under attack. 
And I got a bad feeling about this wedding. Act 1. The Enterprise is patrolling the neutral zone, a no-man's land separating the planets Romulus and Remus from the rest of the galaxy. Earth Outpost 4 is no longer responding to the Enterprise, and come to think of it, we haven't been able to get in touch with Earth Outpost 2 either. Crewman Stiles is convinced it's the Romulans attacking the outposts, but who the heck are the Romulans? Spock is Mr. Exposition. The Earth outposts are built on asteroids set along the neutral zone. Their job is to make sure the Romulans don't sneak into Federation space, a job they've had since the war between the Federation and the Romulans ended over 100 years ago. It was an ugly war. They used old-style atomics, didn't even have the technology to see each other. The treaty ending the war was negotiated and ratified by subspace radio, so we don't know what the Romulans look like. What we believe, though, is that the Romulans are cruel and warlike, and now it looks like they've crossed the neutral zone, which is an act of war. Kirk says the job of the Enterprise is to monitor activities but do nothing that might lead to war. But crewman Stiles, who lost family members over a hundred years ago in the Romulan War, is loaded for bear. When Outpost 2 and 3 are found to have been blown to dust, Kirk preps for battle. Turns out Outpost 8 is gone as well, and the Enterprise gets to Outpost 4 just in time to see it blown out of existence. The ship that does the deed matches description of a Romulan bird of prey... But as soon as it fires its weapon, it disappears. It has a cloaking device. Doesn't stop Spock, though. He's able to track the ship. Kirk orders the Enterprise to match the Romulan ship move for move. He wants to be seen as a reflection in the sensors, not another ship. Stiles recounts the crimes of the Romulans and takes it a step further, suggesting that the Romulans may actually have spies on the Enterprise. At this point, Spock is conveniently able to intercept a Romulan transmission, though inconveniently, Romulans look exactly like Vulcans. Somewhere in all that, the soon-to-be-married couple talks about how great it's going to be to be married. And I got a really bad feeling about that wedding. Act 2. Lots of icy stares at Spock, with outright open hostility from Styles until he's dressed down by the captain. On the Bird of Prey, the crew thinks the spot on the sensors is a reflection, though the ship's commander thinks it's a ship. Getting to know him, he's got an old officer on board, probably a friend. Sort of a bones to his kirk, or a boyce to his pike. Also, he's tired, and he's not looking forward to the intergalactic war that they're probably starting right now. Part of him wishes for destruction before they get home, though he assures his friend that his sense of duty will prevail. Back on the Enterprise, the crew examines wreckage of Outpost 4, and it's scary. The Romulan weapon has turned the hardest surface known to the Federation into something like peanut brittle. The crew discusses what to do. Styles is all for attacking, as is Spock. He thinks Romulans may be an offshoot of his race, though if they are, and they stayed as colonial and militaristic as he knows Vulcans to have been in the far distant past, showing weakness would be inviting war. After a bit of consideration, the crew decides to attack the Romulan ship while it's still on this side of the neutral zone, since to do otherwise would look weak, which might embolden the Romulans. Act 3 begins a series of maneuvers and countermaneuvers. The Romulans are hit but not destroyed. The Enterprise is hit but not destroyed. The Romulans are hit again. And the commander tries to fool the Enterprise into thinking that they've been destroyed by flushing debris and the body of his old, dead officer friend into space. There's not enough debris, though. Spock is not fooled. Act 4. With no movement seen, Kirk thinks the Romulans are playing dead and decides to do the same. Spock works on some needed repairs in the downtime and accidentally sets off an alarm. Stiles thinks Spock did it on purpose as the Romulans move toward the Enterprise. Kirk fires, and the Romulans try the flushed debris trick again, only this time they throw in an atomic bomb, a trap that damages but does not destroy the Enterprise. While they do have weapons, Kirk decides to play dead again, hoping to draw the Romulans back to his side of the neutral zone. The Romulan commander contemplates going home, but is goaded by a subordinate into finishing off the Enterprise, 
Styles has moved on to weapons where he and the groom-to-be are manning phasers. Spock asks Styles if he can help and gets an openly prejudiced rejection from Styles. When Kirk calls for phasers to fire on the Romulans, though, nothing happens. Styles and the groom-to-be have been knocked unconscious by a coolant leak. Spock rushes back, and he fires the phasers. It's a hit, and the bird of prey is left drifting. Kirk hails the Romulan ship to offer assistance. The commander says he's sorry that they met this way. In another life, they might have been friends. And now, if you'll excuse me, I have to blow up my ship. Which he does. Assessing the damage, Styles is stymied that Spock saved him despite his obvious distrust of Spock. Sadly, the groom-to-be did not survive the coolant leak. And as I suspected, he should have been wearing a red shirt the whole time. Kirk consoles the fiancé, then moves back into the swing of things as we head to the closing credits. So, Ken, last week, um, when we were talking about the conscience of the king, we were talking about the Kodos slash Caridian story, how here we are in the making of Star Trek 20-some-odd years after World War II, Mm -hmm. and this seemed like a really obvious story to do, kind of chasing the ex-Nazi. And it seems like we're back now in that vein where, where we're still just a generation away from World War II and um, not even a full generation away from World War II. And this is heavily, heavily influenced by that event. Um, You have the submarine warfare uh, aspect of it, which we talked about earlier. But I thought even more interesting, you have this racist undercurrent going on here um, among the crew of the ship, but then also toward their enemy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know the, the obvious parallel here is that you've got, you know, in the U.S. we locked up American citizens who were of Japanese descent, um, and then you also had, and this happens, of course, during any war, uh, but you vilify the enemy as something less than what you are, as inhuman, and um, and we we do that here. Well, you know. yeah, well, sure. Although it's interesting when you say that we did that in World War II. I mean, it's it. Yeah, you're right. And and turning our turning our attention towards Japanese Americans during World War II and locking them up in internment camps uh, is definitely a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, the Germans and the Japanese. I mean, it, it, it's sort of a weird thing. I mean, they were trying to take over the world. Let's be clear. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, absolutely. To say that yeah. we vilified the Germans. Ah, you know, I don't vilify the Germans today, but I have to say the Germans were kind of villains in World War Two. Well, yeah, I, and they absolutely <laughs> were. But I mean, the, the the point the point is that, it, like, if you look at propaganda from the time, right? You know, um, a lot of it creeps into this area, uh, particularly toward uh, the the Japanese, where it, it is this very you know racist cartoons yeah, and yeah. racist posters and stuff like that. So it really goes beyond the step of just we have to fight them on the terms on on what it is that they're trying to do to us or do to the rest of the world. I would love to talk to George Takei at some point about this episode. I know it's not like, you know, mm. I've got him on speed dial, so I doubt I will. Although <laughs> maybe that's something that we should try to do at some point, because um, yeah. what's really fascinating is George Takei is giving like some of the meanest looks on the bridge of the Enterprise at Spock. When we find yeah. out that the Romulans look exactly like the Vulcans. Oh, and that's a bad moment. Right. When we find out that they look exactly <laughs> like each other, um, a lot of the crew of the bridge, a lot of the bridge crew starts like shooting daggers with their eyes at Spock. Styles is definitely the most vocal about it. But mm-hmm. Sulu is Sulu is, you know, looking at 
uh, Spock as if he's got, you know, three heads or as if he's walking around ready to kill everybody. Right. Um, especially interesting for George Takei because he spent a good chunk of his childhood in some of the internment camps that we were talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, would you want to have been the director on this episode? Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know what this might look like, but do it anyway because that, you know, it's kind of part of the point. Right. Right. I don't know. That was that was kind of fascinating. I, I will say it's interesting that you you liken this so much to a World War II telling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say it's a perfect sort of peacenik tale for the Cold War. Hmm. Which I mean, I, I mean, it can't. It's not that it can't be both. Yeah. But while you make it World War II, I felt like I was watching a, a slightly modified uh, space telling of Hunt for Red October. We're not oh, hit yeah. over the head yeah. here with the similarities between Kirk and the commander, but we're definitely meant to see that there are you know similarities between Kirk and the commander, which I think is you know in sort of a grander scheme, uh, we're meant to see that our enemies aren't necessarily evil; they're just right. our enemies. Which goes back to what you were saying about the Germans, um, yeah, and yeah. in, uh, in World War II. But I mean, the whole like half the time I've got the song "Russians" by Sting in my head. <laughs> well, it, you know, we, we have all these moments here where we're, we're really given the uh, the clear distinctions and the similarities between Kirk's style as a commander and then the Romulan style of command. Mm-hmm. Um, Kirk early on is shown uh, more surrounded by his advisors and taking their advice. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows when and how to make a decision, but he's he's taken by surprise by all of this and he he doesn't always necessarily know what to do he can't just lead with his gut and and make all the decisions on his own whereas a romulan commander is he's very quick to dismiss his advisors and just go on instinct alone mm. you know yeah at the um, same time i mean it was it was goading by one of his subordinates um that ends up getting him killed I'm not mm-hmm. saying that he shouldn't yeah. trust his advisors. I mean, it's but he. I mean, he actually can listen. He actually does listen. I mean, you could say that part of the conversation that he has with his uh, centurion friend, the uh, the elder officer right. on board the um, on board the bird of prey, um, is sort of meeting with his advisors, or at yeah, least uh, you yeah, know he, talking stuff out. Yeah, yeah, he's got great moments like that. I, I just think that you know the 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 balance of that scale is much more toward Kirk. In yeah. terms of his listening to his advisors, um, so we're, we're we're showing similarities and we're showing the differences here. You know, another big similarity is that they're both very accepting of the idea that this mission may mean death. Yeah, you know, um, although I think with the Romulan, uh, he's looking at this as more of uh, a, a command that has come from on high, and therefore his death is honorable and. Kirk is looking at, well, maybe the sacrifice of the Enterprise and his crew is a way to prevent war, you know, to, to prevent something bigger uh, from happening. So you know, they're both okay with it, but the motivation is, is slightly different. There was actually something that I wondered about. We talked, uh, I can't remember which episode. It's, 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 it's tickling something in my brain, though, so maybe I'll, <laughs> maybe I'll leave it out. Maybe that'll remind you which episode it was. But there's an interesting thing that happens where I almost feel like the Federation would have covered this whole thing up. And maybe the Federation did cover this whole thing up. Mm. There's been silence for 100 years, yeah. right, between the Romulans and the Federation. And then all of a sudden, the Romulans come across the neutral zone, you know, blow up a bunch of places, and then move back across the neutral zone. And the Enterprise is pretty much told, don't engage, Go and check things out and defend yourself 
but but don't do anything that's going to rock the boat. I mean, despite yeah. the fact that you know that boat has blown up three harbors that we have on our side of the uh, on our side of the neutral zone. I'm not saying. I mean, it, I'm I may be making stuff up in my head, but it, it felt a little bit like this was something the Federation would have been happy to see swept under the under the rug. Like if yeah, Kirk yeah. if Kirk and Spock and Styles had not had their conversation about you know well what are going to be the ramifications if we let the Romulans go it sort of felt like Vulcan uh, Vulcan it sort of felt like a Federation you know the, the command of Starfleet would have been glad to see the Romulans sort of sneak back which would have been short-sighted mm. but you know that's a whole yeah. the interesting thing is there's a lot of there's a lot of military stuff that you can take apart in this episode there's a lot of you know chess being yeah. played uh, it tends not to be the kind of thing that we do, and I'm honestly not the most military-minded guy. Like I can't tell you much about tactics. Um, this is a this is a this is a pretty rich episode, though. I will say really quickly, going back to some of the similarities, dissimilarities. I mean, we are given that there is a cultural difference between the Romulans and and the Federation, no matter how similar they are. Um, Styles is openly hostile on the bridge of the Enterprise. Oh yeah, he he, he you know practically calls Kirk a coward. He uh, practically calls Spock a traitor, um, right. and he gets a stern, you know, finger in his face. Don't you do that again, Mister? Is pretty much what Kirk mm-hmm. says. And then Styles does it again, and Kirk's like, "Okay, really, don't do it again this time." And that's yeah. it. Whereas, you know, somebody on board the Romulan ship makes a mistake. They send a they send a communication to uh, to the home planet Romulus. Um, which, in fairness, is what gets them caught by the Enterprise. So, I mean, right. it, it is a pretty right. big mistake. But, I mean, the second he makes the mistake, there's no even, like, we're going to have to consider what to do with you, young man. No. I mean, the second he does something without being given an order, you are busted down two ranks. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. I, really? Because I've been in this man's army for however many years. And, and in, like, 30 seconds... You've taken like 10 years off that or, or 12 or, or five or however many. Um, yeah, the Romulans don't mess around. No. But hey, speaking of uh, rank and responsibility, really glad to see here that Uhura just, boom, goes right from communications to navigation. You know, she is an integral part of that bridge crew. And uh, <laughs> it's no question about it. She, Which she is, can do it all. Okay, that is awesome. Um, I will say the way that we find out that she can do that is because they apparently only have two people on board the ship who can run the phasers. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Now that, that is a little strange. (laughs) Anybody can fly it. Yeah. Yeah. But, 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 and you have to have guys down there pushing the button. Yeah, exactly. When somebody up on the bridge says fire, it is kind of a, it's kind of a weird thing, right? Okay. So I'm going to say fire and we're going to intercom that down. Where somebody's going to push a button, you know, it might be good. Maybe we move the button up here. <laughs> right. That's something they actually do in, in uh, the next generation, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Picard doesn't even have to turn around to tell Worf to fire, let alone you know rely on yeah. an intercom. Well, well, there's a lot of technical and and scientific uh, problems that that creep up in this show. Yeah. Um, it, you know, everything from uh, noise in space. You know, we assume that these ships are separated by hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometers, miles, however you're uh, measuring this, and yet sound is going to travel from the bridge through the vacuum of space yeah. to the other ship. Uh, there's stuff like that. There's uh, 
you know, calling their bursts uh, phasers when it seems to be more like a, a torpedo or a depth charge that's going off in space. But even then, if you're far enough away and there's no uh, matter in space, then you've got nothing to carry that <laughs> shock. So anyway, wait, wait, you know, wait, wait, wait. Uh, I, I didn't think we were going to do this. Um, we're not doing this. No, I, I'm well, going to stop right now. <laughs> no, guess what? We have to do one more. If you get those okay. two, I get one more. I left but it out because it wasn't terribly important in the recap, but one of the uh-huh. feints that they pull is um, there's a comet. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I'm sorry, there's right. a comet that they use kind of like a cardboard box. I yeah. mean, you know, they kind of don't really take into account the size of the comet. Now, I understand that it's, it's, it is decided that the Enterprise is faster than the Bird of Prey. So the Enterprise may be able to sneak around or may be able to get past, you know, the Bird of Prey if it needs to. But the Bird of Prey is going to fly into the tail of a comet. And yeah. so with the Enterprise, which is following at a great distance so as not to be seen or, you know, definitely identified as a ship um, – you know, they're traveling very far behind. But then when the bird of prey is about to go into the tail of the comet, uh, the Enterprise is going to really quickly sneak around to the other side of the comet. Right. It's a comet. <laughs> it's not like a, I'm going to sneak around the car and scare my friend when he comes out. You know, if I've got 20 years because the car is actually in another state. I don't know. That that yeah. struck me. But you're right. As you started to say, and maybe I should have let you. Um, you know, that kind of uh, scientific problem and geekery is is probably for another show. It is. It is. Um, but hey, finally, you know, mentioning the uh, the husband to be uh, the ill-fated groom in this show who should have been wearing a red shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will mention that as little as we know about him um, and as kind of, uh, uh, I don't know, obvious uh, or kind of ham-fisted as it may have been. Here we have a death of a minor character who has some impact, you know, we actually see that his death by the end of the show means something to somebody. And Kirk has to be there to console her. Every other person who has died so far, we haven't had that moment. Yeah. You know, so uh, it's worth pointing out. Uh, we we still don't know his name, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, uh, but but it, it, you end on this somber note, and um, and even when they run the credits, it's just kind of the the darkened corridors of the Enterprise and Kirk walking by himself after he's tried to console uh, the bride to be. Well, that's even a neat little bit of storytelling, though. He takes a few steps, and and you can actually see that his gait changes. Yeah, he's yeah. sad when he leaves the chapel where mm-hmm. he has consoled the fiance. But by the time by the time it fades to black, he's actually picked up his pace a little bit. He's not yeah. jaunty like at the beginning of an episode, you know. No, but, but, but he's he's back in yeah. duty mode. Yeah, he's back yeah. in he's back in this way. Cloaking devices, the neutral zone, a World War II plot in twenty third century trappings. What messages can be found in the depth and silence? So I mentioned, you know, that we have uh, a bride and a groom, and we have a a death that has some meaning to it. Um, But let's talk about that bride and groom. So we open up this episode in a, uh, a wedding ceremony. 
mm-hmm. in, uh, in a, apparently what is a chapel or, or some sort of makeshift chapel. Um, we, we definitely get that feeling. Well, there's some, they refer it, to it as a chapel later in well, the Well, they do. Yeah, yeah. But, but there, there's some you know, religious iconography around. The, the podium is kind of cross-shaped and all of that. And, um, and I feel like this is important for a couple of reasons. So we're, we're saying that in the 23rd century that certain individuals at least maintain some traditions, some beliefs, some sense of uh, ceremony. Mm-hmm. And I get the idea that, well, on a, on a ship like the Enterprise, it is finite and you've got, you know, 400 plus people on board. Probably this room is used for all kinds of ceremonies at uh, from people with all kinds of different points of view. And I, I immediately thought back to this uh, thing that I had read about Gene Roddenberry early on in developing Star Trek, really fighting the idea of a chaplain on the ship mm-hmm. because he knew that the crew members would all have different beliefs. And first of all, that wasn't the emphasis of the show. That was never the point of the show is to express, uh, you know, individual religious or, or traditional beliefs out into the world. Um, but you would have created this storytelling problem where, you would then have to ask, well, who would the chaplain represent? You've got multicultural, multi-species on board the ship. Well, then you have to have a Vulcan chaplain. Well, that's Spock. Well, then you have to have this kind of chaplain. Well, that's, you know, Kirk or Sulu or whomever. So you just have this this logistical problem of how you do that. Um, but to me, I, I thought it was kind of interesting that at least we're we're tying this back to the idea of some traditions that linger. People still get married. They may do it in a religious or non-religious context. It doesn't really matter, I I don't think. Um, (laughs) And I thought this was handled... Really? You you think it it, it does matter? I don't know. Uh, Well, see, here's the thing. To me, this was much more believable than... um, You know, a, a couple episodes ago, Dagger of the Mind where you had the office Christmas party and it just seems like people run amok, you know. Yeah. That that seemed very incongruous. That seemed very out of place. Well, we actually, we didn't talk as much. I'm sorry, forgive me. I didn't mean to interrupt. We didn't talk as much about um, the office Christmas party and Dagger of the Mind as we talked about talking about the office Christmas party. Uh, I know, I know. Yeah, Yeah, so that, that did seem kind of weird and incongruous, but you can go ahead and, you know, chalk that up. Here, I guess the question that I have is, you say it doesn't seem very important. We spent a good five minutes one time talking about something that happened for 30 seconds. <laughs> and it was the part that happened on the cage. And you had said that as many times as you would watch the cage, you know, having mm-hmm. the Talosian call hell uh, a, a legend that you heard in childhood to Pike. I mean, it, that actually seemed like a very telling thing and a very important thing. The problem that I'm having with the chapel Mm-hmm. is I don't uh, – part of me wants to discount it because it wasn't written by Gene Roddenberry, which may sound crazy, <laughs> but part of me wants to discount it because, I mean, as we've talked about, and I'm sure we're going to see this all the way through, and of course you're going to see it during Next Gen because that got handed over to you know other people and then other people who mm-hmm. had nothing to do with uh, with uh, Gene Roddenberry you know, did stuff mm-hmm. on um, you know, Voyager and Deep Space Nine and certainly on Enterprise. I don't know how seriously to take the chapel in this. Now, you're right. They're not being overtly religious with the chapel, Mm -hmm. but they do call it a chapel. They call it a chapel at the end. And when we get to um, the end of the show, when Kirk is going to uh, console the fiance, she seems to be praying. 
We don't yeah. know to whom yeah. she's praying. She doesn't, you know, there's nothing that's overtly any one religion, but she's down on her knees kind of looking up and sort of that, you know, yeah. uh, Garden of Gethsemane pose that we get in so many Jesus paintings. Right. But, but I mean, she's having a personal moment. And I guess the, the reason that I'm not um, maybe not putting the emphasis on this that, that I think that you are is that. There's nothing about Star Trek that says that people don't have individual beliefs. Right. Um, And why not on a ship with 400 plus people, you have a room. You know, the way that ships are built, you just build a bunch of empty rooms and then you go fill it in with whatever is is useful at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, the fact that you would have a room on board where people could kind of uh, unwind, meditate, do whatever it is that they want to do, or in this case, <clears throat> at the beginning, have a ceremony, something <laughs> traditional, why not? Why not? I'm okay with that. I know I know, we're not doing Shakespeare this week, but I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I think you're Iago. <laughs> I think you're Iago, and, and uh-huh. everyone listening is Othello, and I'm Desdemona in this because you're telling me that i'm putting the emphasis on it but i happen to know behind the scenes pal that you're the one who put this in the notes oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean Uh. because i I think it's it's worth it's worth bringing up it it is it, it is so um let me put it this way we haven't opened star trek with anything like this ever yeah that's true you know um so it is telling us something about these characters. But I guess what I'm trying to say is by having it in there, we're not making a big grand statement about the philosophy of Star Trek. I think we're just saying something about the people here. Well, I think we might actually be saying something more about, you know, war having repercussions. I mean, you said that Mm -hmm. Tomlinson's death actually means something. Tomlinson's death would mean something more to me if Tomlinson were engaged to uh, Nurse Chapel. Of course, that would also be weird because up until very recently, she was engaged to Dr. Uh, Corby. Dr. Corby, right. <laughs> right, right. Um, but I mean, if, if he were engaged, eh, let's say Rand, what the heck? She's not going to yeah. be around for much longer. Although, you know, good to see her back. You had said on last week's show that it was her last um, film. It, was, correct. it was the last time she was filmed. Right, um, right, which I sort of in my head meant, oh, well, we're not going to see her again. But of course, they have that whole production thing being out of order from air date. So, you know, right. need to see her right. back. I fully expect to see her show up in uh, in Voyager at this point, because you keep telling me she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and she keeps turning back up. Yeah. Um, I, I, his death would have meant more, would have been more important if we had known his character before. Heck, if he had even been Riley, show, if he had been a carrier, yeah, yeah. If, if he had been a character that we had seen two or three times, it would have meant more. It felt to me like that, that that's really what that was about, was that there are there are repercussions mm-hmm. to what happens, you know, in just sort of, you know, general uh, everyday life. Although it would have been yeah. neat if it had meant more. I'll be honest with you, the whole wedding thing bothered me, not because of um, not because of the chapel and the religious implications, because that's fine, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, how well do you remember Boys in the Hood? Not well at all. Okay. okay. Um, one of the characters in Boys in the Hood, um, the athlete, I can't remember, Trey's friend. I remember Trey's name. I cannot remember his friend's name. But they were lifelong friends. And one of the things was he was actually, I think he was going to school. I want to say it was on a on a sports scholarship. I want to say it was on a football scholarship, but I can't remember. And during the movie Boys in the Hood, we're waiting to find out whether or not he is actually going to get the scholarship, whether he's going to be accepted to go to college. And tragically, he gets you know shot and killed. And, and a lot of the activity in Boys in the Hood. And one of the one of the closing moments in Boys in the Hood, 
um, is the mother, um, after he is dead, gets the acceptance letter to college. And that's supposed to like make us feel worse that this thing happened because, oh, not only is it a tragic loss of life, but look, he was going to he was going to be good. He was mm-hmm. going to do better. Mm-hmm. He was going to get out. It's just tragic. It's tragic. Period. So I mean, to me, the whole wedding thing was uh, it was it felt it felt cheap, and that may sound mm-hmm. terrible, but yeah. we've got this almost Disneyfied couple, especially when they halfway through they're like, oh, I'm going to marry you, buddy. No, you're not. Yeah. We all well, know but, you're not. <laughs> we but, but all I mean, know. You know, I think that's also the reality of producing a TV show at that time. Like, you know, now nearly 50 years later, you can produce a show where you can introduce a character that people get to know and then take it for a left turn and kill that character, have something tragic happen to that character. At the yeah. time, if we were saying, no, 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 the, these are the important characters. These are the not so important characters and, and they will forever be separated. Yeah, so I agree with you. I mean, that would have been really cool. That would have been really bold if we had somebody like Riley as the groom there. And we would have, been, we would have felt that impact longer. But yeah. I like what they did with it, given those kind of constraints. I like that we had characters who we got to know at least a little bit, even if it was obvious, even if it was ham-fisted. Uh, I'm kind of okay with that. And um, like I said, that was the first note that I wrote because obviously it's the first scene in the show. And and it made me think about that quote from Gene Roddenberry uh, uh, talking about fighting, having a chaplain on board. So I, I keep going back and forth on this. I feel like it, it, it's important in that we show human tradition, we show uh, human beliefs of, of some sort or another – uh, existing in some form in the future, but then it's also not important because again, it, it's just a thing. Yeah. It, it's something. It's something about this couple, but not necessarily everybody else. Yeah, I, you know. You know. I mean, I guess today we might mm-hmm. have it be a cute little kid. Yeah, yeah. And in the sixties, there's no way you're going to kill a cute little kid on board the Enterprise. But it seems to me that the wedding right. was actually more about. Um, war having real life consequences. It's not yeah. just a battle between captains. It's not just a battle between, you know, military personnel. It's, it's also, I mean, it, it has a, I don't want to say human toll because certainly a lot of Romulans died too, but you know, for, yeah. sh- for shorthand sake, I mean, it has a human toll as well. Speaking of humans and the human toll of things, um, I really loved McCoy's speech to Kirk. We have this moment where Kirk is expressing his doubt to McCoy about how all of this will turn out. And McCoy, it's an intimate shot. McCoy just grabs him on the shoulder. And I I don't want to do injustice to it by misquoting it here. Um, But McCoy basically does the math. And he says, look, of the, the millions of worlds in our galaxy that have life, and then the millions of galaxies out there, the... The infinitesimal improbability of your existence makes you special. It makes you important. Now go get us out of this. <laughs> you know, essentially how it ends. <laughs> but, um, but I thought it was a great moment. It was a really terrific uh, a moment that was very humanistic. Um, so that, that's all I have to say about it. Uh, it, just that I liked it. <laughs> DeForest Kelly is Mr. Rogers in Balance of Terror. <laughs> right. It's not, it's not it's not a bad message. You're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I felt, I mean, it's very much a Bones message. Yeah. Especially for somebody like Kirk, um, who he, you know, reveres. Right. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, it was, it's, you know, yeah, it's an interesting message. I mean, it, it's, 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 <laughs> the note that I have on it is he basically gives him the, you be the best you, you can be speech. Yeah. But you know, it's okay. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, which is probably yeah. what, which is probably what Kirk needed at that point. And it's not a bad, I mean, it's not a bad philosophy. Yeah. I mean, everyone, everyone's special. Mm-hmm. I don't know that everyone would hang with that philosophy, but you know, it's not right. a bad thing to hang with yourself, I guess. Well, let's talk about where Star Trek has taken us now, because um, up until this point, we've really been looking at the 23rd century through these sort of rose-colored glasses. You know, it's all about look at the the riches and achievements of technology, and here's this bold adventure that we're going out into the universe or out into the galaxy to experience. Mm -hmm. And... um, and kind of dealing with how humanity uh, approaches that for, for good or for worse. But now we're doing something very specific. Now we're dealing with war. And it's not just the threat of war at the moment. It's the fact that we have had war as recently as 100 years ago with this entire other planet full of a, of a population that was horrific. Yeah, <laughs> you know that they, they could have wiped everybody out, um, and and this is a very real threat. And now they are going around and killing all the people and destroying these star bases. So, um, you know, this seems again incongruous with what we have learned so far. Now we get to see the Enterprise as a military vessel, not just as an exploratory vessel. It is actually it's very fascinating too that that the Federation. And Starfleet, that their solution to the Romulan problem is build a wall. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, we, we talked about how disappointing it is that we still have prisons back when mm-hmm. we did Dagger of the Mind. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. There are people that we just can't reach, period. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole race of people that we can't, that we just cannot find any common ground with. So rather than keep trying, yeah, we're going to build a moat. <laughs> yeah right. And, right. and we're going to arm our side of the moat. Now it turns out we're not going to arm it very well, but we're going to arm our side of the moat to make sure that you know they don't cross it. Which is kind of a, I mean, it, it's it's kind of stunning to find out that we have that kind of enemy in the twenty third yeah. century. And, and this is legitimately how we achieve peace uh, by both <laughs> sides being armed to the teeth with the ability to destroy each other. Right. But we just have this wall. In between, so now this goes back to what you were saying about this being a Cold War yeah. era uh, uh, story. Totally. I mean, yeah. and 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 I said, I, I jokingly said, it's sort of a it's sort of a peacenik idea that your enemy is, you know, your enemy is not evil. Your enemy is just your enemy. I mean, he just yeah. happens to be on the other side of the fence from you. But you know, if you actually got to know him, if you actually you know were able to, um. You might see a lot of those differences dissolve. Now, I mean, again, there are still big differences. Like, you know, the Romulan doesn't ask for help at the end. In fact, he refuses help. In fact, yeah. what he's really going to do is blow up his own ship. Right. Because right. because duty demands it. Yeah. Eh, you know. <laughs> That's, yeah. So there are differences then. Although, yeah. who knows? Kirk might have done the same thing, I guess, if they had been caught. I mean, we are told in the beginning that he has been told by, by Starfleet that the Enterprise is uh, expendable. Right. They might as well all be wearing red shirts if things really go down with the Romulans at this point. So, I mean, maybe 
maybe they would have done the exact same thing. But it, it sort of it does it seems to me it sort of separates it a bit that we don't that we don't have a um, that we have an enemy that is so entrenched in what they are and how they are that they would sooner that they would sooner blow themselves up than be captured. That makes it very different from Hunt for Red October too, because you know yeah. Sean Connery's character all the way through is actually trying to defect and take his big ship with him. Right, <laughs> and right. despite the fact that that the Romulan commander has respect for for the Enterprise and its crew, and certainly its captain, um, yeah, that does not outweigh what he sees as his duty. Yeah, um, I, I think the other big uh, uh, plot, well, not plot line, but but kind of theme here is bigotry. Yeah, obviously, yeah. obviously, um, but it's played out really well. I think it's really effective. Um, I, I like seeing uh, Styles get put in his place a couple of times by Kirk, mm-hmm. and Styles is just not learning at all. And it takes him getting his life saved by Spock before he finally comes around. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it all may be very, again, very kind of obvious. Um, but I, I thought it was uh, relevant then. It's relevant now. Uh, certainly, it was relevant. Uh, like I said, this show being made about 20 years after World War II, where we did have things like Japanese internment camps, where we were assuming that people who looked one way must have been the enemy, um, that uh, this had to have rung a bell with the audience at the time. And at the same time, though, you would hope that that, I mean, you're right. You can put it in that World War II or post-World War II idea and, and you know, say that it's particularly relevant to a 1960s audience. But mm-hmm. one would hope that that would, you know, trans- transfer a bit as well to people thinking about, you know, any bigotries that they have. That might be asking a bit much of, you know, a 48-minute TV show. But um, mm-hmm. you would hope that that would open people's minds up to, well, you know, I would have thought that that guy was evil just because of the way he looks. Or I would have distrusted him just because of the way he looks. I wonder if maybe I'm doing that with anybody in my life today. Right. I mean, there's. Right. I mean, there's definitely an anti-bigotry message. One would hope that it would transcend the Cold War and even World War II um, <sighs> implications. Yeah, there's. You're right. Full-on anti-bigotry message here. With the neutral zone once again secured, are there messages and morals we can take from this episode and bring back to today? Each week on Mission Log, we ask several questions at the end of the episode. We'll start with a common one. What do you think John's wearing? Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not one of the questions we do. Uh, does this episode hold up in your opinion, Mr. Mr. Champion? I'm going to go with uh, yes, yes, and yes. Okay. Um, there is a lot that I like about this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the tension is there uh, throughout. And I, I, it, this was an episode that I had, I had seen very early on in my viewing of Star Trek uh, when I was a kid. Didn't maybe see it as often in between. And then, again, it's sort of like getting to watch it now with fresh eyes. Enjoyed it that much more. Um, I, I thought the character moments were terrific. I thought the compare and contrast with Kirk and the Romulan commander, terrific. 
And it, it did have that feeling of a tense World War II drama with all the, uh, the great spaceship stuff. But then all the other things in there, uh, like the looks at bigotry, the, the, the racism, uh, all of that I think plays very well. Um, if a little bit obvious, that's okay. Um, so yeah, I, I put this up there in my uh, top so far favorite episodes of Star Trek. How about you? Um, well, I'm partial to the Corbomite maneuver just because of what we had uh, what we had mm-hmm. uh, sort of taken out of that episode a, a couple of episodes back. Um, but yeah, this is a wonderful episode. I just yes, you're right. The tension is there. Getting to see behind the curtain. Uh, as far as the Romulans are concerned, that's there. Um, very, very rich episode in terms of production. Because, I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I can fault one thing. Mm, what's that? How much plaster are you using in a bird of prey? Oh, yeah. Because yeah, every a, time they get hit, yeah, yeah, dust falls from the ceiling, <laughs> which I don't remember ever seeing on the Enterprise. Usually smoke comes from nowhere on the Enterprise right. or comes, you know, they're blowing circuits on the Enterprise all the time. Right. That is seriously the one. Well, that and sort of the disnification of the of the married couple or the couple that is destined never to be married. Um, yep. Those are both tiny things, and they're both momentary. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the dust coming from the ceiling of the bird of prey is actually ridiculously tiny. But it was just, it was just <laughs> like, wow, really? Is, is a crossbeam going to come down like a wooden one? Right. Um, right. It's. I mean, it's just a tremendously rich episode, and 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 dramatically, uh, it just so well acted. So well written, um, and the messages are, are really just incredible. I mean, the message of you know, the Romulan has an old friend or confidant on his ship, as does Kirk, as did Pike. He pulls yeah. moves that instinctively match uh, the Romulan commanders. Uh, uh, Kirk does, and vice versa. They've got similar jobs. They got similar compliments. Culturally, they're different, but we're made to see throughout this episode that they're practically the same guy. And mm-hmm. that's you know, while we've got. What we're we're four years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we've still got an arms buildup going on between you know, the, the U.S. and the Soviet. Um, there's still sort of an unknown kind of scary enemy in yeah. 1966, or I guess it was still 66 when this aired. Right? We haven't flipped right. to over to 67 yet. Okay. Right. Um, to sort of bring that message of, okay, you guys might be on opposite sides, but you're not. I mean, there's nothing inherent about the two of you that should make you enemies. It's kind of a fantastic, uh, kind of a fantastic message for the time. So, well, let's talk about the message. Um, Sorry, I kind of went over into that, didn't I? No, well, uh, that's (laughs) fine. I mean, to me, I I was kind of fighting for the message a little bit because really, well, well, uh, only because what's on the surface here is that it's really about this battle and the battlefield tactics and and battlefield honor and and all of that. But then when you go back and watch it, um, it, not that you don't see this the first time as well, but you can let the other things sink in. Hmm. Um, Certainly the moral points that are being made, certainly with Styles um, and and his reaction to Spock and his reaction to the enemy, um, and not letting our past, in Siles' case in particular, dictate his ability to duty now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, this realization that at the end of the day, the enemy is still a person. Um, I, I think all of that is valuable and good. Uh, so 
And how about your take? Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say you sort of, well, you didn't say struggled, but you had to sort of look for the meaning here. The meaning here was just front and center the whole time to mm. me with, you mm-hmm. know, sort of the anti-racism mm-hmm. or anti-nationalism. I almost wonder if it's like an anti-anti episode. How do you mean? <laughs> like, like choosing to dislike someone or disliking someone because of, you know, X. Because mm-hmm. you're from somewhere else, and where you're from, they do things differently. Or because I've always been told that you were my enemy, so you must be. Or because you've got pointy ears, you know, and translate that to your eyes are a different shape than mine, or your skin is a different color than mine, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, it's it's almost like, because you do get an anti-nationalism message here, it seems to me, in that we're given to see that there are similarities between the Federation and the Romulans, which can translate easily to their assimilation uh, similarities between, you know, U.S. citizens and Soviet citizens at the time. Uh, but you're also given anti-racism message because, oh, wait, Romulans have pointy ears and Spock has pointy ears. Mm-hmm. Spock must be one of them damn Romulans that we hate so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, I wonder, I mean, if, if it's if it's maybe and then you do have that part that you liked with uh, with Bones and Kirk in the middle of the sort of, you know, yeah. we're all just guys out here, man. You know, yeah. we're all just you're just a you're just a thing floating in a gigantic cosmic sea of other things. So be the right. best thing you can be. I mean, it, it's interesting that with these two military ships, members of giant military organizations, um, there is still a fairly humanist message that, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's not that evil thing and you're not going to screw up the entire galaxy. Do do your best. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, when, when they're in the battle, when, when they're there faced with each other, it, it, it's uh, obviously the 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 background that this is played against is sort of the politics of the Federation and the Romulan Empire. But what it comes down to is two people in command of ships that have the potential to destroy each other. You know, and it is as played out with that, you know, I'm a person, you're a person, you're my enemy because of all these other reasons. But the reality is now we're faced with having to potentially kill each other. Um, yeah, I, all, all of these myriad and multiple messages that are there, I thought were terrific. And, and I saw them all. My My point was just that I think in the first viewing, I felt like, wow, I'm just really getting absorbed in the tension of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, you no, know? it's a great it's it's a great yeah. episode. It's a it's a fantastic yeah. episode. So I think we both agree then about the messages holding up. Uh, heck yeah! Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I I, I kind of wish fifty years later that they were messages that we had learned. Mm-hmm. I wish we could look at this as a sort of historical document and say, "Wow, there was a time where we wouldn't have just." But you know, yeah, I think it's a message that yeah, it's it it's a message that sadly still has to te- uh, stand the test of time. But um, it does, so it's still there as a as a tale for people to pick up if they want to, you know, try to figure out why they shouldn't automatically hate the other. Yeah. Hey, bummer way to end the show, huh? <laughs> but hey, you know what? After all this near brush with interstellar war, I tell you what we could use next week, and that's a moment of shore leave. of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. 
Hey, by the way, Ken, I think I figured out uh, why all that dust is falling into the uh, Romulan ship. I think they had a roof garden planted on the <laughs> top of the Bird of Prey. <laughs> so when they decloak, it looks like a chia pet coming across. It, <laughs> it does. Across, it coming does. across the neutral zone. Yeah, yeah. it's nice. It's edge. very dark in space, so you don't see it all the time. Yeah, but, but very green and forward-thinking of the Romulans. And transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.